In a stadium rich with tradition. We have that here, and it reeks. And when you come in, teams take the field, they can feel it. The lights shine the brightest. Definitely playing at Camp Randall is one of the best places to play in college football. This is the Camp. Now, here's your host, Zach Heilprin, and the Athletics' Jesse Temple on the Wisconsin Sports Zone Network. Yes, welcome into the camp here on the Wisconsin Sports Zone Radio Network. I'm Zach Heilprin, joined by Jesse Temple from The Athletic. Badgers had the weekend off, but uh, got plenty of things to talk about as we ramp you up to the Iowa game coming up this Saturday. And we'll include a pretty long conversation with uh, Scott Docterman, Jesse's colleague with The Athletic. And then also we'll be doing our ticket giveaway. We did not do it last week. We'll do it this week. Two tickets to Iowa. All you have to do is follow our Twitter account. I'll be putting out the trivia question, and if you answer that trivia question, send the answer to uh, in a DM to our Twitter account, the underscore camp underscore WI, and uh, we'll put all the answers together. We'll draw a winner on Tuesday. So it's a big weekend. Iowa, Wisconsin, it's a, it's a great rivalry. It's also the 20th anniversary of Wisconsin. Uh, there are two Rose Bowl teams, the 1998 season, 1999. They're honoring them both this week. Uh, I guess it's the 1999 Rose Bowl and the 2000 Rose Bowl. They're honoring those teams. And Jesse, uh, you did, a, my guess is a pretty long story, written story, on, uh, on Ron Dane. Because it was his 1999 season, the second Heisman Trophy in Wisconsin history. He broke the all-time rushing record for an FBS player that year. Uh, It was later allegedly broken um, by Donnell Pumphrey from San Diego State. We'll get into all that, but there's it's a it's an interesting time in Wisconsin football because they went from you know being an eight-win team and kind of like in '96 and '97, his first two years there, to just breaking away in '98-'99. And I remember the '98 team. I'm sure you'll have plenty of stories, but it was the worst team to ever play in a Rose Bowl, right? Like that was Craig James saying that. And there's just so many stories wrapped up in this, in those two teams. I'm wondering, and you spoke to a ton of guys from that era, what stood out to you the most? What's the story that stands out to you the most? Well, so the the story that I wrote, and I apologize. It, it, is, it is a long one. It's about 5,000 words. It's probably the longest story I've done on The Athletic, but hopefully uh, if you're a subscriber, you'll like what you read. It focused on... Ron Dane's senior season because it's been 20 years since Wisconsin won that Rose Bowl, last Rose Bowl winning team, and obviously that was just such a magical year where he, again, as you said, set the all-time rushing record and won the Heisman Trophy. But you're right. I, I do remember the stories about the, the 98 team and Barry's famous quote is that I guess we're the second worst team <laughs> in Rose Bowl history after they yeah. won that game. But yeah. to me, that there were a number of stories that really stood out as I – uh, went through the story and did the interviews, and I talked to Barry Alvarez and uh, Bernie Wyatt and um, Chris McIntosh and several other people, Brian White, who was the running back coach at the time. But I think Ron set the tone for what was to come at the end of his junior season, and I talked to Ron about this. So we went to a college football award show, and Ricky Williams was there, and Ron said that he knew that Tony Dorsett, who previously held the record before Ricky Williams broke it in 1998 and then won the Heisman Trophy at Texas, he knew Tony Dorsett went to Ricky Williams' game when he broke Tony Dorsett's record. And so Ron got up on stage and he looks at Ricky Williams and he said, so when I break your record next year, are you going to come and watch me? (laughs) Are you going to come and watch it? And he said, Ricky Williams kind of laughed and said, no, I'm going to be in the NFL, so it doesn't matter. But that... I thought that was funny because it kind of goes against everything we know about Ron Dane and who he is and his humble nature. And it was sort of joking, but at the same time, it was like, this is on my radar and this is going to happen. And I, I, I just, I laughed at that. So that was, that's kind of in the first section of this story, but there were so many great little anecdotes like that throughout that year. Yeah. The, there are several moments that stick out for me as a fan at that time. I was a senior, I think I was a senior in high school. They played Michigan state and Michigan state was the best run defense in the country. What were they giving up? Like 40-something yards 39.8 yards per game on and, the ground. And so I had to take the ACT that morning. And so I'm like, I think I was going to come out of the test, and he's going to be having like 10 carries for 15 yards. And I get out of there, and he's got close to 100-something early in that game. They, they rolled over them. It was just insane. And uh, what he did to that defense that day, that game stands out. The Purdue game. I think a lot of people thought that that was kind of his Heisman moment, uh, the run down the sideline late in that game. Um, and then obviously the Iowa game too, but just all like 
they all come, when we talk about this, it all comes flooding back to me very, very quickly. So the, the interesting thing as I was doing research for this and talking to people about it is kind of how many segments there are to a season in general, but that season in particular, because at the start of the year, yeah, yeah. Uh, they played a 1AA team, they played Murray State, they played Ball State. Barry told Ron before the season that he was not going to get garbage yards. He was going to have to do this in the flow of an actual game, and he wasn't going to let him rack up stats against bad teams and blowouts. So we only played one half of the first game. We played three quarters against Ball State, and Barry said people were wearing me out on the call-in shows, saying the only person who can prevent Ron from winning the Heisman and getting the record <laughs> is Barry Alvarez. Um, and then they have that stretch where they lose two games in a row. They, lo- they lost to Cincinnati. It was the worst loss of the 1999 college football season. Cincinnati had lost to a 1AA team the week before. I think they finished 3-8. And, and and beat Wisconsin 17-12, and then there was that loss to Michigan where Ron didn't have any rushing yards on eight carries in the second half. Yeah. And people are writing him off, and I can understand it. They're 2-2, two and two, they're 0-1 in the Big Ten. And not long after that, Sports Illustrated did its top 10 midseason disappointments. Ron was on that list, and he said that a coach put it on the outside of his locker so everybody could see it, and he didn't even leave it there. He showed it. He said, I had it in my hand. I showed it to my offensive lineman and said, look what they're talking about. Uh, that He was less than pleased with yeah. that. And then they have got to go play Ohio State, and as you know, that was, that was Brooks Bollinger getting his first start, and they're down 17 nothing. and obviously they turned it around in the second half. And that that was sort of the the transformation of this magical season when it all went down, and Ron slowly worked his way back into the Heisman conversation. You mentioned that Michigan State game when I was talking to Brian White, the running back coach, he said as the coaches were game planning that week, they said, we're going to have to throw the ball. They're too good at stopping the run. And Ron had an 18-yard carry on the second play. It was the longest run from scrimmage Michigan State had given up. And then he had a 51-yard touchdown run. And yeah. Brian White told me that Barry would was on the headset and he was sort of sarcastically remarking, keep probing the run. <laughs> but in a way that made it clear that this discussion and the the mere idea that we thought we wouldn't be able to run was ridiculous. <laughs> and and th- yeah, so there were just so many great moments. And as you said, the Purdue game too, because it was Drew Brees versus Ron Dane. That's how it was hyped up. And yep. whoever won was going to have the inside track for the Heisman and Drew Brees played well but Ron ran for 200 plus yards and this signature run he destroyed a safety Barry said it was like a a man (laughs) destroying a boy like it was like they weren't even on the same level and so those are some of the stories in in the included and that was the the Purdue game stood up and it just reminded me not that just that idea of him running over a guy the Purdue game of his freshman year there was a guy that had been talking trash the entire game the Purdue defensive back for whatever reason and he tried meeting Ron at the goal line and just, just he just gave him like a forearm shiver and the guy goes flying back. And Dane's not that trash talker, right? So, but you could tell that he wanted to get up in that guy's face and just, yeah, <laughs> what were you saying? He had so many of those moments. And I, and I know that he was not, not the flashiest guy by any stretch, especially, you know, when we've seen Jonathan Taylor, when we've seen Melvin Gordon, seen Monte Ball, but there was just something different about him. A guy that big that could move the way that he did was just so Wisconsin. Like, it was just big body coming at you. But the, his feet, he never got enough credit for how quick his feet were and how quick he was in the hole. And he was able to run away certain different times in his career, right? When he was 270 pounds, he's probably not running away from too many guys. But he was still he still could do it a little bit. When he was 250, he could, he could, he could run away from some guys. So, yeah, I don't know. It was that, that year was special all around. He came in at 272 pounds. Right. And there's always the famous story. This is mentioned, too. Because Bernie Wyatt is the legendary East Coast recruiter who found him, the high school principal at Overbrook High, where Ron Dane went, mentioned him, and he gets the VHS tape, and he's showing Barry, and there's no... So that he played fullback. He was yep. the number one fullback in the country. He was an All-American, and Barry's talking about that he's... There's no hole whatsoever on the film, and he's moving the pile like five yards. But he said every once in a while they would put him back a little further, and he would get through the line, and nobody in the secondary could catch him. And he's like, oh... I think he could play running back because a lot of teams wanted him as everyone. a fullback or even as a linebacker. Almost and, everyone did. And and so you know, Ron wanted to carry the ball and it, it just but for him to come in as a freshman at two hundred and seventy two pounds, I didn't put this in the story, but Bernie Wyatt but told him like now, when you come here, you can't gain any more weight. <laughs> I mean, he was 272 pounds. And there's another funny story. So the first fall camp, the first practice of fall campus freshman year in 1996, Brian White, the running backs coach, does. he said he did this drill where he would have the running backs and the fullbacks run right at him. And at the last second, he would move one way or the other. And the running backs were supposed to move in the opposite direction. <laughs> and, and Brian White moved to his left and Ron accidentally cut 
the exact same way. And he said, I could see my life flashing before my eyes. And he was still nimble enough, despite cutting the wrong way, to get out of there. And he said, Barry was right there. We looked at each other and he said, we'll be all right with this guy. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I remember his first game was Eastern Michigan. It was, it was a blowout. Everyone just stayed around waiting for him to get a couple carries. Because back then, so 1996, obviously the media and, and what you knew about the team was not on the same level as what you would know about it. There was very little out there about him, but there was always, he was a parade All-American. And so you kind of like just wanted to see it because Wisconsin doesn't get parade All-Americans. And he just, from from the get-go, you could tell he was going to be special. The Iowa game, obviously it makes sense here. Wisconsin playing Iowa this, this I'm not talking about the Iowa game this week. I'm talking about the Iowa game that year. Um, back then, before there were boxes, you know, where we, in the press box, you could, you could look across and you could see a building in the far away. It, it would have been, I think it was on Dayton Street. It was further down, but you could see it from, well, from, from where we sat in Section D in like 50, row 52. You could see across and you could see it. And every time he would get a yard or however many yards he would get, it would start at, I think, at 90, was it start at 91? That he, how many yards did he need? He needed 99 going into the. Yeah, so it started at 99 and it would tick down. People were up in that just taking numbers down, putting numbers down, and then all of a sudden at the end of it, it was NCAA all-time leading rusher. Like, you can't see that now because obviously the boxes are in the way, but that was something that also sticks out. Also sticks out the fact that it was November, and it was like 50-some-odd degrees, close to 60 degrees that day. It was insane. Ron even said that, I mean, he wasn't like actively keeping track of how many yards he needed, but that was out there. There was a billboard along the highway, and he said anywhere he went, he became fully aware of how close he was. And, and that Iowa game, everyone has described it. Some people have described it as the greatest day in Wisconsin football it's history. And it was magical. And the Chris McIntosh said as much. Yeah, the 33 day towels. towels that just turned that place insane when he broke the record. And then after the game, where they unveiled his name on the facade and everyone was holding up the 33 towels. I still have I still have mine along with my ticket and like you know it's, it's it was a special day all around and they obviously clinched the Big Ten title that day. I, I mean I you, know, you put it up there it's up there yeah and I think it was interesting because it it, it happened but it didn't come easily like Iowa was not very good but they certainly were not going to let Ron Dane get this record on them if they could and he had twelve carries for thirty nine yards halfway through the second quarter and then he broke a thirty seven yarder. So I watched the play. It's, it was on ESPN Classic and included in, inside the story. He needed 23 yards. They came out um, at their own 17-yard line late in the second quarter, and uh, the call was 28 handoff. Brian White said anytime there was a two in the play call, it was a running play to the tailback, and the eight was represented that it should go through the eight hole. And Ron said they get in the huddle, and Chad Coons, the fullback, was like, we're going to break this record right now because the whole play was it was like a slide draw. He was going to go behind the fullback. And I think that run epitomized who Ron Dane was because it showed a little bit of everything. He had the power to get through the hole. He juked a dude, yeah. and then he got to the sideline and had this big gain. And it's just, I wasn't there, obviously, but from everything I've heard and then talking to people, just, it's cliche, but it was magical and special. It's one of those moments where if you were a Wisconsin fan back then, even now, 20 years later, you know exactly where you were. You knew what you were doing. Like you said, you've yeah. got the ticket. You've got the towel because you're just, not gonna see, you're just not going to see that. No, no. You're not going to see it because you're not going to see a guy stick around for four years and do what he did. That's why his record is going to be is, is close to untouchable because there's not going to be guys who are going to be sticking around for four years. Jonathan Taylor, if he stuck around, he could probably break it, but he's not going to. Like That just doesn't happen. And, you know, they, it wasn't just the yards. It was the success that came with those yards. They won two Big Ten titles. They won back-to-back Rose Bowls. They're the only Big Ten team to do that in what? Since when? Ever? To win back-to-back Rose Bowls. Yeah, that's a, I don't know that one. Either way, it's what they did was remarkable, and it, all of his success came along with team success. And I should say that Barry, being the masterful coach that he is, at the start of that year made it clear from the very first meeting, this, is not, this record and this pursuit is not going to be about one guy. He incorporated it into the team records. You win the Big Ten, you go to the Rose Bowl, Ron gets the rushing record, he could win the Heisman Trophy, and he specifically talked to his offensive lineman. Chris McIntosh told me this that he said, Barry told me if you're, what he told the offensive lineman is if you're an offensive lineman, no one's going to know who you are unless you miss a block. But you've got an opportunity to block for the guy who could be the all time rushing leader. What better way to sort of be honored and to play to your highest potential than to do it in that way? And that's something that stuck with the team the the entire year is that it it wasn't just about Ron and Ron would be the first to tell you that it was never going to be just about him. It was about the team and that's why it all works so well. There's one more story I, I wanted to share. 
we we didn't get to the point where he won the Heisman Trophy, which obviously was after the Iowa game, and by the time he had the record, it was pretty clear he was going to win. He was the favorite. He ran away with that one. But Barry said, so they're in the downtown athletic club, and I don't know how many people know this story. Maybe it's well-known, but I thought it was pretty hilarious. Um, they go to break the TV show. They get to the point where they're going to announce the winner, but they go to commercial, and Barry says that there's a lady from makeup, and she, she runs out. So Ron Ron is in the front row. Barry's right behind him. And Barry's sitting next to the Marshall coach because Chad Pennington, the quarterback from Marshall, is, is up for the Heisman as well. So the makeup lady runs out during the break, wipes down Ron, who's sweating, dabs makeup all over him, and then runs out. Didn't touch anybody else. And the Marshall <laughs> coach leans over to Barry and said, well, I guess that's a dead giveaway. Uh, I just thought that was hilarious. So obviously, uh, Ron won the Heisman and the... <laughs> The, the makeup lady only came out to put it on him, no one else. Yeah. Um, all right, so that should be fun to, to see that in 98, 99 teams this weekend for Wisconsin. We've mentioned time and time again the record that he broke that year, right? He no longer holds that record. Donnell Pumphrey uh, is the NCAA's all-time leading rusher, and it is something that has bothered me since the day it happened it continues to bother me to this day it's probably going to continue to bother me for a long time and it's not healthy but it's going to anyways Daniel Pumphrey is the all-time leading rusher in FBS history he does not have the most yards in FBS history Ron Dane has the most yards in FBS history has 7,125 yards in his career correct that is correct that's close to I think 700 more than Daniel or 600 more than Daniel Pumphrey yet the NCAA does not consider those extra 728 yards that he got in the bowl games because they did not count bowl game stats back then. So you ask, why can't they just go back and put the bowl stats in? Well, a couple years ago, I talked to the NCAA. You have also talked to the NCAA uh, since then. That's going to be another story you're going to be writing about uh, or coming out this week. Why can't they put them in there, Jesse? So let me start by saying that everyone associated with Wisconsin's program back then is still pissed. (laughs) And when I went to interview Barry in his office for this Rondane story before, and this is how I start this second story about the the yardage discrepancy here. Before I even put the recorder down, he said, I've got a bone to pick with the NCAA. And he launched into the fact that, as you said, 700 plus yards are unaccounted for in the final statistics. And he said he was the MVP of three or four bowl games he played in. He's like, come on, that's another 700 yards. Whatever, 200 and three of them. Yeah, and so everyone I talked, I mean, Brian White, running backs coach, said that's BS, but didn't use the initials, and, yeah. and then said it makes absolutely no sense, and everyone here would agree. So I did talk to the NCAA, and it's something they've said for a while, but they made this decision in 2002 and and David Warlock is the person that I spoke to who's the direct NCA director of media coordination and statistics and he said that it was the member schools that helped come to this conclusion so a lot of it was sports information directors but when the NCA made this decision they decided they were not going to retroactively include statistics and so obviously Rondane his last season was 99 so those 728 bowl game yards don't count and I understand I understand both sides like obviously I, I didn't grow up a Wisconsin fan and so I, I don't I don't have as much skin you in the game the, as you, you don't do have the passion on this. that I do I don't have as much skin in the game as you do on this but he said they weren't going to go back and let's say player a was the 1975 rushing champion they weren't going to go back and dig in and redo the records and he said you also have to consider that we do the records for FCS division two II, division three and so you would have to retroactively go in and change the stats for everything and the other thing he said is there's always there has to be a cutoff at some point, which I understand his perspective. He said, "What if we went back to 1980? Then people would say, "Well, what about Tony Dorsett's records?" And I don't particularly care. Go back to go back to the first year of the organization. The thing about that is because the NSA started keeping the, stats in have, 1937. Right. Yeah. So you're go back not going to have full, but right. But you can't accurately do that. Yeah. Because is you what their argument is, and their argument is because you won't have. What if a guy returned a punt for five yards? You need that five yards. It's not just about the rushing yards and the receiving yards. It's about every single little stat that happens along the way. Right. I don't care. It's there. 
Do and it. that's Wisconsin's argument. And it makes perfect sense to me, obviously. It makes perfect sense to everybody. Be, be worthwhile in something, NCAA. Be worthwhile in something that you do. But his argument was... Other than was, take money. And, and I... <laughs> Zach is fired up right now. But I asked, I asked him specifically because, okay, you can say that you don't have this from 1940 or 1950. The numbers Ron put up in those bowl games are indisputable. Everybody saw it. Everybody knows it's 728 yards. And that's what he went back and said that there has to be a cutoff at some point and it would be a never ending thing if they arbitrarily picked one year and he said that it's not arbitrary that's when they started I'm, counting them i'm just telling you what count. his i'm just oh, telling you what his argument was i know exactly what his argument is because i emailed with him 3 years ago about it and so that's where they're at is they're ne- they, when they made this decision they decided that they weren't going to go back and retroactively award numbers because it it is true if you go back and you include ron's bowl game numbers then you've got to change the numbers for oh. a lot of other things i'm just telling you oh. what their rationale is i mean it makes no sense it's it's preposterous i'm just going to say this it's preposterous Thank that you. ron has 7125 yards donnell pumphrey wound up with 6405 and yet he is considered the ncaa's major college rushing champion he had eight more yards than ron dane did Not excluding excluding ron's bowl games and the thing the thing is if you if you looked at the numbers, it's like not even close. So Ron doesn't get 728 yards from his four bowl games. Donnell Pumphrey gets 528 yards because he played in conference title in bowl games. He got the record because he ran for 115 yards in the Las Vegas Bowl. Remember that game. So it from that perspective, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And I talked to Ron Dane about this because I was talking to him for the other story. And so I specifically asked him because a lot of people pr- may know when Donnell Pumphrey broke the record, Ron congratulated him on the Twitter, but uh, on Twitter, but at the same time, put the hashtag seven one two five to make it clear that he's yeah. nowhere close to his actual <laughs> record. And I'm just going to say what Ron said. You can read about this on the Athletic uh, in its entirety and everything else we've discussed. But he said, "I got the most rushing yards in college history." Period. He can have that little record. I have the most yards in college history. Period. I have more rushing yards than him on the list. He's like fourth for most yards. And Ron ain't lying, because if you counted up the postseason stats, Ron would be first, Ricky Williams would be second, Tony Dorsett would be third, and Donnell Pumphrey would be fourth. And and so I said, so you're you're comfortable with your place in, in the NCA? And and he said, Ron said, I'm okay because I know I've got more yards than everybody. Not just him, I mean everybody. Everybody. <laughs> so I just thought that was fantastic. Um and you again, I know we've been talking about this for a while but there's two separate stories that are going to run on the athletic this week uh and if you're not a subscriber and you're listening to this podcast i know i'm biased but i I strongly encourage you if you haven't subscribed yet this would be a big reason too it was a lot of fun and, and i think badgers fans will enjoy these stories Now time to welcome in a special guest. It's Jesse's uh, colleague with The Athletic. It is Scott Docterman. He covers Iowa football. Scott, how's it going? Great to be with you guys. I uh, appreciate you joining us here. Just a, a broad a big picture of Iowa so far. They're 6-2 and two, just like Wisconsin. Their season has kind of played out a little bit different than Wisconsin's. Is it about as you've expected? I mean, they've beaten the teams that they were supposed to beat, haven't beaten the teams that maybe they weren't supposed to beat. Where would you judge their season to this point so far? Or how would you judge it? I think... It, it, you can look at it from several different angles. I mean, obviously, it's a 6-2 and two team that's ranked in the top 20. It's only two spots behind uh, Wisconsin. I, I think you can look and say, well, they've, they've won every game they've been favored, and they lost the games that they weren't. And uh, they lost to Penn State and Michigan by a combined 12 points, which really uh, shouldn't be a shameful type of uh, performance, really, there. But, but I think when you look at what, what's going on with Iowa it's a little bit the defense has been outstanding I would say probably a little bit better than I'd expected I mean to hold Michigan to 10 and and Penn State to 17 and have a couple of shutouts this year has been pretty impressive the offense though has been really especially in Big Ten play uh, just not been as good as I expected Uh, they have some problem areas and areas that were exploited by Michigan and Penn State that really kept down the, the scoring and the production. And and Iowa has struggled to really generate much of a running game at all. And I think that's probably the biggest problem with this team right now is, uh, you know, they're really deficient at the guard position. And uh, 
the teams have exploited them, and it's not that they just have average guards. They really have below average guards, whereas their tackles are, are pretty elite, and I would say that their center is very, very good. Uh, but I think the, the fact that they've been without, you know, the, for some reason this, this has just been a terrible deficiency for Iowa, and I think it's really cost them this year. Well, Scott, as soon as Wisconsin lost to Ohio State, the, the look-ahead people were saying there's four Big Ten West games for Wisconsin, and this is a de facto elimination game, really for, for both teams, obviously, since they've got two losses and trying to keep pace with Minnesota, whatever may happen with the Gophers. So for, from your perspective, what areas do you think Iowa could potentially have an advantage in this matchup? An advantage on Wisconsin? Oh, boy, that's that's tough, because I guess I've seen this over years over over years, and in every matchup, it seems like Wisconsin knows what Iowa's going to do and is better at it. So that's really been kind of a problem area for Iowa for the longest time is how can they beat Wisconsin? Well, I don't know. They can't do it. Uh, I think right now that what Iowa has done, and this is a change in philosophy, is, is Iowa has decided to go more shotgun and almost exclusively either runs out of the shotgun or throws out of the shotgun, which is just so odd for this the personality of this program. And I think Iowa's offensive, you know, the wide receivers are good enough to where I think they can create some matchups. And I haven't said that before, you know, in the last 10 years <laughs> that Iowa has good wide receivers, but they actually do. Uh, the problem is that Brandon Smith probably will not play. He had a, he had surgery for a high ankle sprain and that's really um, something that's, uh, you know, that, that hurts Iowa because he's been their most consistent wide receiver, but they still have a few others that have made some plays. Um, I think really what it comes down to with Iowa is it, it's not going to, it would not pull away from Wisconsin, even if it, if it's a win and what it's going to have to come down to are the, the smallest details and the margins that make both of these teams so good, which is it's going to be about field position because field position has just crushed Iowa the last couple of years against Wisconsin. It's going to have to somehow convert some drives and, and move the, ball up the field even if it doesn't score just to make sure that Wisconsin's not taking over at the 50-yard line and and I think if Iowa can somehow do that get in side say you know the 35 convert field goals when they're there I think the defense is good enough to keep them in the game I don't I, I just don't think that they are good enough however if you give uh, Jonathan Taylor consistently you know, 60, 50 yards to get to the end zone or at least to get in the scoring position, I think that's going to be a, a problematic area for the Hawkeyes. So by and large, I think how Iowa wins is just to play the exact same style as Wisconsin and just do it a little bit better. And that's a boring answer, I know, but, but it's really the truth because I don't see an area where they can absolutely exploit uh, the Badgers. I need to go back to the shotgun thing that you talked about with the running out of the shotgun Wisconsin has done the exact same thing, and I'm wondering if you've gotten an answer from Iowa coaches, players, as to why they've gone to that, because Wisconsin has done it as well. They've For five of the games, they've been 70% under center, and under in three games, have been like 70% uh, the shotgun and pistol, and it just, you know, we can't get a straight answer as to why they are doing it, what's the difference, you know, week to week and that type of stuff. I'm wondering if you've got an answer out of Iowa coaches as to why they've made such a drastic change. Most of it has been personnel-based, and Iowa, up until this year, had rarely had a per- personnel grouping on the field that did not involve a tight end. Well, their two best tight ends, of course, are now in the NFL, and one caught a 75-yard touchdown pass today. So they're, they're really in um, – they've kind of had a, a deficiency there this year. They've got some good younger players, but they're just not there yet. So in order to get their best players on the field, they've gone four wide receivers quite a bit. And the only way to really make that work is to operate out a shotgun, allow Nate Stanley to kind of survey the field a little bit better. Uh, the problem is I just kind of wonder if it's allowing them to run the ball as effectively as they could. And, and again, they, they, I think their running backs are okay. I think they're better than they've been in the last few years. But just they just have a real deficiency in the guard position. That I don't know if they think that the running back can get past what that issue is. Uh, but it, it is a kind of a strange development because it's something that's kind of unusual for this program. You know, just like Wisconsin, they're very much similar in build and, and makeup. They just do things a little bit differently from time to time. It's just uh, so I, I think it's more of a matter of personnel is better at the receiver position, and it enables Nate Stanley to, to kind of survey the field uh, more out of the, the shotgun 
formation rather than under center when you've got you know four wide receivers on the field quite a bit at the time these days. Just just to follow up with it, obviously Nate came into the earth probably pretty high expectations for himself. Has he played as well as you guys thought he would coming into this year? Uh, if you were to ask me, yes. If you ask the fans, no. Uh, you know, it, it really has been I, – I think he's had a nice year. I think he's done a lot of really good things. Uh, the one thing Iowa has really struggled to do is uh, once it gets inside the opponent's 30 to 35-yard line, it's struggled to convert into touchdowns. And that's, uh, that's partially him. I think that's partially play calling. But it's also a lot of it is they just can't run the ball as effectively as they want to. So um, I think he's been pretty good for the most part. He's made some really good throws, good reads. They've picked up a lot of chunk plays. And, and in fact, it gets, uh, you know, at Michigan, they only scored three points, but they were inside the 36 six times. So, um, you know, part of it was that, and this is what scares me about this matchup for Iowa, is Michigan was so good at Iowa at the Blitz. Uh, they were they they would back off in certain areas and come from other areas and 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 Wisconsin's better than than Michigan at that area. I think they might have better athletes doing it, but I know the way you know how gap sound that defense has been over the years and the the misdirection in some ways that a lot of the blitzers come. That I think in Iowa's case uh, that that may create some real mismatch problems for them. You know whether. At Michigan, there were three guys blocking one guy, and two guys were free. That happened a lot that game. So I think, uh, you know, Nate Stanley has done a nice job of trying to find the open receiver if he has time to. If he does not, then, you know, like most quarterbacks, he struggles with that. And, you know, Iowa, without having a tight end that they can depend on, um, has struggled to find that kind of outlet, that third and six type receiver. Um, you know, in the middle of the field. So I think that's going to be, you know, Nate Stanley, to answer your question, I think he's performed well. I'm just not sure that that, that they're, they're kind of running on 80% capacity and not really as high as, as even as they were last year. On the other side of the ball, one thing opponents seem to have done reasonably well the last few weeks against Wisconsin is contain Jonathan Taylor. Um, I'm wondering what your thoughts are and what your confidence level is in Iowa's defense in doing that. Because if you look statistically, Iowa has one of the best defenses in the country in, in all the major categories. What's, what's your confidence level in their ability to slow Jonathan Taylor and make Wisconsin try and be one-dimensional and win through the air? I think it's fairly strong. I think they'll be okay. I don't think they'll be great. I mean, I think that uh, you know, last year, I think Wisconsin ran for 200 and some yards. And, and one common element I looked through the last five years of this matchup is the team that, that wins the rushing battle wins the game. And that's happened all five times last year. Uh, you know, Wisconsin ran for 210 yards. I don't see that quite happening unless there's a big, a big carry. Uh, but I think that Jonathan Taylor is capable of getting somewhere between 80 and 120 on Iowa. I don't think they are a dominant run defense, but I think they're very good. I mean, and I say that is, you know, they've all, they're eighth in the country, you know, so they're not bad. But of course, Wisconsin's a little bit better. I, I do think, <clears throat> excuse me, I do think they could slow down Jonathan Taylor. I do think that they'll force Wisconsin into passing situations. The one difference, and, and probably the one surprise in a negative fashion on Iowa's defense is that usually they get to the quarterback. I thought they would get to the quarterback more than they did this year. You know, they had 35 sacks last year. A.J. Epineza led the Big Ten in sacks. But Iowa could go eight deep in that position group. And when Epineza came in the game, he was basically a designated pass rush specialist. Now, he is miles above where he was as a run defender. Uh, but a lot of times the opponent has noticed, you know, what he can do as a pass rusher. So he gets chipped a lot. He gets uh you know, double teamed in a lot of cases where, you know, they'll have a guard or a tight end stay in and help the tackle because he's so powerful. Uh, and, and last couple of weeks, the other guys have stepped up. Uh, they're you know, at 16 sacks, and I think they had five against Northwestern, but they still, uh, they, they still got a long way to go there. So um, I think with, in Iowa's case, they're always going to be built to stop the run first, that, and I think they'll be able to slow down Jonathan Taylor quite a bit. But I think what I've seen at least, you know, before the last uh, last game for sure is uh, the Jack Cohen and, and the wide receivers and and uh, I think a lot of Ferguson the tight end I think he's terrific that I think they can have they can move the ball down the field now will that result in touchdowns or field goals 
I think that's what's going to probably determine the outcome of the game. Scott, this is a game that if you know whoever wins will stay in the hunt for the uh, Big Ten West title. And I, I want to offer this up to you. It's a sold or not sold. You can say you believe it or you don't believe it. The winner of this game wins the Big Ten West. Sold or not sold on that? I am mostly sold. And <laughs> that's such a Jesse answer. That's a, that is an amazing uh, that's hedge. Le- that's less of a hedge than the way I hedge. So mostly sold to me is like 80% you're on board yeah. with the winner. This I, I, I apologize. Go ahead. Mostly sold, all right? Mostly sold. And here, here's why I would say that. One is I, I think if Wisconsin wins, Wisconsin wins the West. I don't think Minnesota's going to win the West if, Wisconsin, if it's a showdown game between the Badgers and Gophers. I do think that... Uh, the, the the Badgers win. My only question with Iowa, and I do think Iowa um, is better than Minnesota from what I've seen, but the one question I have is we know the physical toll this game takes on both teams. It's as physical as any game anywhere in the country every year. They, If Iowa plays, Iowa plays Wisconsin, then follows with Minnesota at home. Minnesota has not beaten Iowa in Iowa City in 20 years. I know this is a game that Minnesota points to, just like it does with the Axe game. It's it's one and the same. And uh, if Iowa goes through a grueling game like that and then has to play another get-up-for-it type game against a pretty physical team, I don't know that they can win back-to-back because I don't know that I don't trust their offense enough to be able to score enough. I mean, I think they could give up 20 in both games um, in, or less and, and be successful there, but I'm not sure – the offense could score 21 in both games. So I would say if Wisconsin wins, I think Wisconsin wins the West. If Iowa wins, I would say, uh, yeah, I think they probably win the West, but I'm not so sure that they could get Minnesota, even though they've beat them, you know, again, for the last 20 years at home. Scott, as you well know, Wisconsin and Iowa have been sort of mirror images of each other in terms of how they operate, how they build their programs, the types of players they recruit. You've been around Iowa's program for a long time in that fan base. I wanted to get your perspective on how you think fans view this matchup and what people in Iowa think of Wisconsin's program, because certainly for the last several years, Wisconsin has won this matchup. So is this one of the bigger games, I assume, on the schedule? And and how do fans view Wisconsin as a program right now? There's a lot of respect there. I would say out of the four trophy rivalry games, that this one is probably the one that Iowa fans respect the most. They, you know, they don't have they have no love whatsoever for Iowa State and Nebraska. Uh, that's really turned into a, kind of a nasty series. And then Wisconsin and uh, Minnesota has probably felt the same way as as Wisconsin thinks about Minnesota. But but this one, I think, because there's there's similarities in style in the way that they're built. You know, going all the way back to Barry Alvarez you know, coaching at Iowa under Hayden Fry, coaching alongside Kirk Ferentz, that they know each other so well. Uh, you know, that I think that I know from Iowa's perspective, the fans respect uh, Wisconsin a lot. But I also think that they are very frustrated and not winning this game because uh, looking back, and this is kind of fascinating, I did this today to write for it for tomorrow, is, you know, from 2002 through 2009, Iowa won six out of the eight matchups. Iowa was ranked the top ten four times in that time frame and really it, it kind of taken control of that series. It has completely flipped since 2010 on, and that 2010 game was probably the most entertaining and, and interesting game that I've ever covered. Uh, you know, 31 to 30, eight lead changes, and that seemed to just set kind of a different tone on these on this rivalry. And, and a lot of it is, you know, uh, Iowa struggled with attrition among its skill position players over the years, um, using a lot of walk-ons, and, and I know Wisconsin does as well, but Iowa seems to be just a little bit more deficient in certain areas, and that's really hurt them in this matchup. And I think uh, because both there's not a lot of deviation in what they do, there's not a lot of scheming, I think, that makes this either team go. It's more of a, you know, hey, Wisconsin's pin and pull, zone blocking, we're going to blow you off the ball, and here comes our big running back, and, and Iowa's, uh, you know, we're going to punch you in the face, we're a zone team, and, and next thing you know, everybody knows what everybody's going to do, it's just Wisconsin's had a little bit better personnel, and, and that's been really frustrating for Iowa fans. I think they want to see it, I'm not saying that they love losing to them, but I think they could tolerate an even split, but not necessarily the one-sided split that we've seen, you know, six out of seven for the Badgers 
because of the previous you know decade it was uh, six out of eight for the Hawkeyes. So I think right now that there's a lot riding on this game for Iowa emotionally for the fan base, and if uh, another loss could really, I, I think, I think send this team into kind of a, a humbled state, and and the fan base is kind of going down a little bit farther because then that means no division title. Uh, you know, every year but two in this decade, they've won between seven and nine regular season games, and it just feels like, uh, oh, here we are again, and the Badgers own us, and we're below them. And, and so I think there would be a lot of frustration with the Iowa fans if uh, they didn't win this game. All that said, how do you see it playing out on Saturday? I think it's going to be between a field goal and a touchdown type game, and I, I, right now I'd skew towards Wisconsin. I just think Wisconsin's a little more solid in, in most of its areas. I think I was good enough to be in this game, and I think if there's turnovers, uh, field position issue, what have you, I think Iowa's capable of winning this game. But, but right now, I, I just see too many deficiencies for Iowa, and mostly in the running game. And, and uh, you know, time of possession, line of scrimmage play is going to matter immensely in the outcome. And I think Wisconsin, from what I've seen, and, and I'm not going to judge them on the uh, Ohio State game because that's, that's a different team altogether but i do think that uh wisconsin's a little more sound and i would see it somewhere in the neighborhood of uh you know 20 to 17 20 to 14 so we're not looking at 10 to 6 then i was kind of thinking like from that 2015 game that was one of the worst well very entertaining defensive game but ugly ugly offense i was kind of thinking that maybe that what that, that potentially we could see that on saturday but maybe a little bit more high scoring than that one let's all well, hope so i, I mean i, I know, hope that too but i'm just saying after what Wisconsin's shown offensively the last few weeks, it just kind of feels like, you know, it could be that type of game with these two defenses. It, it could. I know it's funny when uh, Iowa played Northwestern a couple weeks ago. I think I picked it eleven to five, you know, <laughs> and, <laughs> and it was, it was twenty to nothing. And, yeah. and I, I think if they would have played eight quarters, that Northwestern wouldn't have scored that day. So you know, yeah, I, it could very well be a field goal fest. It could very well be a, somebody gets one touchdown and somebody else gets three field goals or four field goals and. It's, 12 to 10, 9 to 7, something like that. Absolutely. You know, and I do remember that 10 6 game because, for, in Iowa's case, the most pivotal play of the last 10 years was Joel the fumble Stoppy. that, you know, and uh, it, it, it was so interesting because uh, <laughs> the defensive end, Nate Meyer, uh, was, was in the A gap. He knifes through, and Micah Capoe steps on Stave, who then trips. The ball squirts out, and Iowa recovers at the five. Otherwise, uh, there's no magical 2015 season where Iowa goes undefeated. So, uh, yeah, just hold on to the ball. Uh, just hold on to the ball. Like there's no reason to try even give it to the, the tailback. Just hold on to the ball, and uh, you'll get another shot the next time away. Joel, as a senior quarterback. Yeah. How does uh, how is Joel Stave perceived? Out of curiosity. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. If, do we have time in this? You know what? Episode for that. All I'll say about that is all time winningest quarterback in Wisconsin history. That's yeah. uh, and people hate when you bring that up. Indisputable fact. Indisputable fact, right there. I know that wins are not a quarterback stat, according to some. But when we talk about Joel Stave, all-time winningest quarterback in Wisconsin history. People just mm-hmm. get people just got tired of seeing the same thing after a while, yeah. and they they didn't they loved they, him in 2012. Yeah, his sophomore year he was great. He threw 22 touchdown passes. It was the second most in school history at the time. And then this wasn't entirely his fault. No. Anyone listening already knows the Gary Anderson saga where he decided to go with Tanner McAvoy, despite the fact that all of us knew that Joel was a better passer. And Gary intimated that if you had seen what was happening in fall camp, you knew which direction things were headed. That's what he told reporters. And then like a week later, we, well, all, we all thought we knew. We, we did know. And then he wanted a mobile quarterback. And that really messed with Joel's junior season. Um, I think he, as I've said, he got the last laugh his senior year. He broke his nose in the Holiday Bowl. He came back in, led the game-winning scoring drive. And again, all-time wins leader so can't, there take you have it. Away, can't take that away from him and alex hornibrick transfers so he can't take that record so it's all good hey uh, scott thanks a lot for uh jumping on with us well thank you for having me on and i know i've used the comparison and i said mike gazelle is the joel stave of iowa because <laughs> <laughs> the basketball so i know exactly what you're talking about thanks so much for having me on i really appreciate it all right there he is scott doctorman from the athletic
All right, time to give away a pair of tickets to this week's game against Iowa. Remember, all you have to do to enter, follow our Twitter account, the underscore camp underscore WI, answer the trivia question I'm about to give you, and then direct message your answer to that Twitter account. You got until noon on Tuesday to get your answer in. Here's the question. In 2015, Joel Stabby got his foot stepped on near Iowa's goal line, fumbled trying to hand the ball off to Wisconsin's running back. Iowa recovered. Badgers never got close to the end zone again and lost that game. Name the player that stepped on Stabby and the player he was trying to hand the ball off to. Again, just follow our Twitter account, the underscore camp underscore WI. Direct message or answer to that account. Again, until noon on Tuesday to get your answer in. Good luck. All right, let's get into, uh, I don't know, quick game of sold or not sold. Uh, winning the Big Ten West would make this year a success, sold or not sold. I'm sold because that's the goal. I think Wisconsin's at a level as a program where that's the goal every year, but then it's can you win the Big Ten championship? I almost wonder <laughs> what will happen if they do win these last four. They go 10-2, and two, they get to a Big Ten championship and have to play Ohio State again, and the Buckeyes win by like four touchdowns. How would people feel about that? Again, a lot of teams would love to be in that situation where you win the West and can play for a conference championship, but they've gotten there so many times recently and they have not won. I feel like it would be different if... They hadn't already lost to Illinois. Like if they, at some point, you're going to have to beat Ohio State if you want to win a Big Ten championship or Penn State for that matter. We'll see what what happens. Penn State obviously still unbeaten. They play Minnesota this weekend. Um, I feel like the expectations changed when they got to number six. You know what I mean? Like the expectations for everybody changed when you get that high and you play that well to that point in this year, and then you lose the way that you do. Um, people were had shifted expectations. It was not about Big Ten West. That was obviously. Well, a step because you have you have to get to that step to be able to get to the steps of a Big Ten championship and then a college football playoff. So I think people would have a sh- have a problem sitting here and saying win the Big Ten West, get beat in the Big Ten championship game, and you think that's a success. Well, the alternative is if it's not a success, then it's a failure. I mean, that's how I, that's how those are your two options, or you just say it was as expected and it was okay. I I would never view them winning the West and playing for a conference championship as a failure because that's not guaranteed. We saw what happened last year. But, but you're you, right. But you, just, but you just said it. You just said it. They get there a lot. Yeah, it's you're not, right. It's not like it's a once-in-a-lifetime thing getting to a Big Ten championship game. It would be for Minnesota. It's not for Wisconsin. Yeah, I, I'm not disagreeing with that sentiment at all. It's just, what are your expectations then? Is it if you don't win the... Yeah, pounding the... Pound I want a, the I want a national there. title, Jesse. If you don't win the conference championship, if you don't play for a college football playoff, does that make your season a failure? I don't think that's fair. Now, you're right. Expectations completely changed. When they got to 6-0, when they did it in the way that they did it, and they, they lose to Illinois, which surging Illini, by the way, probably saved Lovey Smith's job the way they played the last few weeks. But I, it's, it's hard 10, for 10 me... It's halftime against Rutgers. It's hard for me to say that they, I know it they, would be a failure if they lose the Big Ten Championship, although a lot of people may feel that way, depends, especially if it's Ohio State. Depends how they lose the Big Ten Championship yeah, game, right? that yeah. does matter. Um, I don't think anybody thinks they're going to go there and beat Ohio State, right? I can't imagine after what we just saw. And again, it could be Penn State. For that yeah, matter. Absolutely. Um you feel like they have a better shot against Penn State than they get against Ohio State? I think they've got a better shot against just about everybody other than Ohio State. <laughs> this is the this is the best Ohio State team I've seen. They are unbelievable. They got top ten picks. They got two top ten picks, two top six picks on defense, and then they've got two other guys that are could be Heisman candidates if they didn't cancel each other out in, in J.K. Dobbins and Justin Fields. Luckily for them, they don't play Iowa and they don't play Purdue. So they got that going for them and don't have to worry about getting uh, snagged out of, uh, out, of, uh, out of the air like they had the last three years against those two teams. Moving on, Minnesota has a brighter future as a program than Wisconsin. Sold or not sold? If you talk to people in Minneapolis, they may have a different <laughs> response. I'm not sold on that. A realistic response, please. I'm not sold on that. I... Wisconsin's worst season here in the last several years is what happened last year. They went eight and five, and it was like a, a d- disaster in a lot of people's minds. A lot of that has to do with preseason expectations. Look, you may hate PJ Fleck, but he's obviously got Minnesota to a place that a lot, not a lot of people thought was possible, even if the schedule hasn't been particularly tough. They're sitting there at eight and zero, one ten straight. So, but I'm not going to sit here and say that Minnesota is headed in a different direction. If Minnesota starts to consistently beat Wisconsin. Then I think we'll we'll have a different discussion here. I think, but that, I, even then, it's it's hard for me to say based on what Wisconsin has, has consistently done and built up over time. Will it change your? Will anything change your mind if they win this weekend? If they beat Penn State, one hundred percent. No, but like just not just about this year, but like, oh, the direction that the schools are going, or is it just a one year thing? 
whereas everything kind of lined up for them well because of their schedule early on, just getting by some of the games they got by. They've crushed teams of late. Yeah. They have not been close. I look at it like if they beat Penn State, then that changes my opinion on who I think will win the West because then it may not even matter if Wisconsin beats Minnesota. Having said that, even if Minnesota beats Penn State, I'm still picking Wisconsin to go up to Minneapolis and win that regular season finale. Really? I, I, really? I just think I, just think I what would. What if Wisconsin loses this weekend? Well, that may change my perspective. What if I mean, they don't it, win another game until that Minnesota game? I don't think that's going to happen is, is, is where I'm at. If, yeah, if they lose, to, I, this week will tell us a lot, Let's uh, obviously. If, if Wisconsin loses a third game in a row and is 6-3 and three and somehow Minnesota beats a top-10 undefeated Penn State team, I don't see both those things happening. But still, even if all that happens, it's hard for me to say long-term that like Minnesota is going to rise above what Wisconsin has been because of what we've seen for so long. Yeah. Do we think PJ Flex stays around? That is the other thing. Is I, mean, I, I know he is a Midwest guy, but I don't think anybody would look at the Gophers program. And maybe he turned. No one looked at Wisconsin the way they did until Barry Alvarez became and t- did what he did. But still, people don't view it as a destination job. Wisconsin, and I don't think Minnesota can ever be a destination job. So is PJ Fleck with all the SEC money that will be coming flowing in? Do you think Minnesota people are going to are going to pay up and be like, here, stay? We we need you desperately. So my colleague at The Athletic, Bruce Feldman, who's pretty plugged in with the coaching situation, he puts out a piece uh, after so Florida State fired Willie Taggart on Sunday, kind of the first domino to fall. And Bruce... Alex Hordenberg got him fired. And no, Bruce, Bruce lists a number of potential candidates, and he mentioned um, he mentioned P.J. Fleck as, as just a potential candidate. But I that sort of caught my eye a little bit, and I hadn't really thought about it, but there... If you win at a place like Minnesota, you're going to get schools like a Florida State or some of these other potential SEC schools that have a lot of money. Yeah, and that sometimes that's hard to turn down. When you wonder if you look at what Jeff Rom did, mm-hmm. turning the money he did, and and look, Purdue's paying him a really good amount. They got and they have money. Actually, I was never aware of it until he started turning them around. They've got money to give, uh, and, they and Minnesota can, certainly will do everything in its power to keep PJ Fleck. Right, but I just feel like PJ. His ambition is probably higher than Minnesota. If that, and maybe that's not fair. I don't know. It just feels like I feel like that's a shtick that does not last for extended appearance. Like kind of like Jim Harbaugh at the same. Th- Even if he's ultra successful, and, and Harbaugh has not Harbaugh has not been ultra successful at Michigan. But even if even if he was winning, he's winning nine, ten games. His act wears thin on people, and I feel like perhaps it could at Minnesota as well. But they've lost, they've been so bad for so long that whatever you're doing, just keep doing it. Just keep on being elite. Keep on rowing that boat right on down the river. It's uh, it's an asinine to me, but... It's worked so far. It has. Would you rather play for a coach like that or play for a coach like Paul Christ? <sighs> That's a really hard question. I, I, don't, I don't even know if I know how to answer that one uh, because the Paul that we see in interview sessions is not necessarily the Paul that he is behind the scenes. But we, have no idea what, we have no idea what PJ Fleck is behind the scenes. That is correct. We can, all, we can only look at the TV and see what we see on a, data, on a, on a weekly basis and say... One guy does it one way, one guy does it a completely different way. So I think they're I think they're on the opposite ends mm-hmm. of the of the coaching spectrum from an outside perspective, from a perspective just watching it on TV. Of those two guys, who would you rather play for? I don't know the answer to that. I I, I guess I would now, probably words, pick Paul just because of everything that I hear from talking to recruits about how genuine he is. Like you know, when you're talking to him, like that's who he is. I think people still probably have questions about P.J. Fleck. Like, is that people who are close around him will say that's really who he is, and maybe it is, but that's I, just kind of where I'm That's, that's a I, tough I, question to answer. It is, but I don't feel like Paul Chris is putting his name on T-shirts anytime or his, big, or his face. or his Some face, people like that. His face on schedules and, like, him being, like, the program as opposed to the players being the It's always – it's players first at Wisconsin. It certainly has been under him. I don't know if it necessarily was under Brett Bielema. And probably not. It kind of was again with Gary Anderson. I think he pushed players ahead of what as well. But PJ Fleck does not. And I, it's. Uh, I feel like that would wear on guys. But hey, to each his own. He's been successful this year, even though they haven't beaten anybody. We'll see if they can beat somebody on Saturday when they play Penn State. Jesse, thank you very much. Thanks, Zach. You've been listening to the camp here on the Wisconsin Sports Zone Radio Network.